Hebrews chapter 12, two verses this morning, verse 3 and 4. For consider him, that is Jesus, who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for this great, unfailing voice, Lord, of yours to us, your word. We pray that you would give us ears and hearts to hear what your spirit would speak to our lives individually from these two verses. We know they're in the Bible because they're intended to do something in us. Protect us in some way, Lord. Enrich our relationship with you. Give us an understanding of how to live for you and walk with you. And so we pray for that kind of revelation this morning. And we just want you to know we're grateful for your faithfulness in our life. We're grateful for who you are. We're grateful for your love. We're grateful for all of these things in life that are just settled issues because of you and your promises, the things that we don't have to wonder about or worry about any longer in our life. Thank you, Lord, for the joy and the blessing of being your children. And we thank you, Lord, in the name of the one who has made all of it possible. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. We remember that these Christians, these Jewish believers that the writer of the book of Hebrews is writing to, were in the middle of a tremendously difficult uh, time in their life. They were facing great hardship, great persecution against them, uh, solely for the reason that they had chosen to become followers of Jesus for the simple reason that they were Christians. And as these difficulties and these persecutions came into their life for their faith in Christ, in order to uh, escape that difficulty, escape those trials, they were contemplating abandoning their commitment to Christ in order to find a little easier path in the world. And throughout the letter, the writer of the, this book has been telling them that they are not allowed to even consider that under any circumstances. The abandoning of Christ is simply not on the table for us as Christians and as an option. No matter how hard life gets, how difficult persecution gets, or how great uh, the uh, difficulties that we face in life. And in chapters 11 and 12, the writer likens the Christian life to a long-distance race. And he and using that imagery, he proceeded to give these uh, Jewish Christians in this difficult place they were in some very, very practical, very concrete instruction on what they were to do while they were facing these things. So they're contemplating uh, jettisoning their relationship with God or at least going undercover with their relationship with God. He tells them, you're not to do that, and he gives them the reasons why. But of course, what would enter into our minds would be, all right, I'm not to do that, but I'm really in a difficult place in life. 
So tell me what I'm to do instead of what I'm contemplating doing. And that's exactly what he does to them. And he told them in these last few verses, as we've seen in the last two or three studies that we've studied together, first of all, he told them to come under the encouraging influence of God's saints, Old Testament and New Testament saints, who have remained faithful to God in the face of the worst kind of persecution and hardship meted out against them for simply being followers of God. And so to remember those Old Testament saints, New Testament saints, and all of the things that they faced, and yet they remained absolutely faithful to the Lord. And the idea is if the Holy Spirit in them allowed them to be faithful, then the Holy Spirit in us will allow us to be equally faithful in our hour in human history. He told them second that they needed to lay aside every weight and every sin in their life in order to uh, run the race that they were running successfully. And then third, as we saw last time, they were to run their spiritual race with, an endu with endurance. And then this morning, in our two verses that make up the passage we're studying, the writer endeavors to inoculate these Christians against something that they're falling prey to. They're con contemplating leaving, abandoning Jesus, but he goes deeper than that. He identifies for them the reasons why they're contemplating abandoning Christ and their commitment to him. And so he endeavors now to inoculate them related to this great danger in all of our lives to finishing the race that God has called us to, and it is this thing called self-pity. Now, among the greatest threats to our faithfully finishing our Christian race or our Christian life or Christian service is, he tells us in verse 3, weariness and discouragement. And so clearly that's a part in verse 3 of what has them thinking about exiting the race. Weariness, we're told. And the word there literally means to be tired. It means to be weak. It speaks of being tired, not just physically, but tired mentally, tired emotionally, tired even spiritually. And so it speaks of a weariness that comes with hard work, with toil, with tremendous effort. And I think all of us as Christians are going to experience this certainly at one time or another in our Christian life and probably much more often than just one time. As Christians, we go against the entire flow of this world. When we choose to follow Christ, it's like we wade out into a stream now and we're going to walk against the current of this world on every level. And how we live and how we speak and how we think, all of these things. And that takes a toll on us. Greater is he that's in us, the Holy Spirit, than he that's in the world or any opposition that can come against us. But we realize there is an opposition. There is a giving out. There is something that's required of us on every level in our lives to remain faithful to Christ because to remain faithful to Christ means we're going against the entire direction that this world is going in. So we experience 
weariness. And then with that weariness, he tells us in that same verse, discouragement. And that word discouragement means to lose heart. It means to lose hope. It means to be on the verge of giving up. And it describes an intensive desire to be loosed out of one's circumstances or difficulty. And so all that a person can think about when they get into that kind of discouragement is how in the world can I escape this? We begin to hatch escape plans, and that's exactly what these Christians were doing. Now, when we get uh, to heaven one day, and uh, you won't want to go up into heaven and say, I'd like to meet the Hebrew Christians that the writer of the book of Hebrews wrote to, these sissified weak Christians that required uh, such exhortation and, and such uh, a strong warning from, from the writer. The fact of the matter is that these Christians really, really were in the thick of it. I mean, they were enduring a very fierce persecution that was being meted out by a Roman Caesar by the name of Nero, and uh, he was persecuting all Christians living within the Roman Empire. And at the time of his persecution against Christians, he would literally <clears throat> cover Christians, bring them out into the gardens of his palace at night. He would tie them to a stake, pour pitch over them, and light them on fire. And as historians tell us, he would get into his chariot and he would ride naked, you know, screaming and screeching as, as he would listen to these Christians, human torches on fire, screaming as they were put to such a hideous death. Christians under Nero were regularly being fed to wild animals in the arenas of Rome in order to provide entertainment uh, for the masses. Nero would have Christians crucified in order to mock their faith, and he would have Christians, he would gut animals, open them up, and then he would tie, put a Christian inside of that gutted animal and sew them into it, release wild animals and dogs to then uh, come in, tear the animal to pieces. The animal wouldn't know where animal flesh began and ended and human flesh began and ended and would end up ripping the person uh, to pieces alive inside of the animal. Again, all of this being watched by tens of thousands of people in the arenas. And all, he murdered thousands of Christians in Rome, and a general persecution of Christians reached out far beyond Rome itself, and it spread throughout the Roman Empire. And these Christians were feeling the effect of that persecution. That's a significant persecution that they were facing, certainly uh, greater than most any of us have ever faced. And so the writer wrote to them in Hebrews 10, uh, verse 32, he said, but recall the former days in which after you were illuminated, you endured a great struggle with suffering. So he acknowledges the great difficulty that they had been through. 
partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me and my chains and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourself in heaven. So they had already experienced, they had already endured adversity for their faith, humiliation, loss of property, and imprisonment. And then now I want you to notice the Holy Spirit's instruction to those that these that are in danger of being overwhelmed by weariness and discouragement in the Christian life. And he tells them there to consider him, consider Jesus, verses 3 and 4. And that word consider literally means to examine thoroughly, to examine completely. It has the idea of uh, to calculate or to reckon is sometimes it's translated that way in the New Testament. And the word reckon means to calculate or to weigh in the balance. So you imagine in your mind a set of scales where you put certain things on one side of the scale, you put other things on the other side of the scale, and you see if they have comparable weight. And what the writer of the book of Hebrews is telling these Christians in their difficulty and telling us in our difficulties is to take all of the suffering and difficulty that Jesus went through in his life. Examine his life. From his birth to his death to his ascension, examine all of it and put all of that on one side of the scale and the weight of it. And then take all that you are going through and put it on the other side of the scale. And we think about what Jesus went through in his being faithful to God's call upon his life. The mocking, the reviling, the blasphemies that were meted out against him. The verbal persecution, the verbal hurt and pain that was directed toward him as the Son of God. We think about the savage beatings, the repeated beatings that he received on the morning of his crucifixion, beaten so brutally that you couldn't recognize him for who he was on that cross. If you had listened to Jesus' teaching the night before in the courtyards in Jerusalem and looked at his face and you said, I'll never forget that face for as long as I live. And the next day you walked past Jerusalem and you saw those three crosses at Calvary and you looked at the man in the middle cross, you would have not have recognized him as Jesus who you listened to uh, teaching you the day earlier. He couldn't be recognized physically for who he was. The beatings were so great, Isaiah tells us. And then he was scourged, whipped and spat upon They crucified him. Think about that, being nailed to a wooden cross. And then heartlessly, these Roman soldiers stole what little belonged to him. I mean, they cast lots for his robe. They divided up his belt and his sandals and what little he owned. These thieves, these Roman centurions, this was part of the pay that they received for all of this. They took from him what little he had. And then on that cross, he died. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is basically saying, though, yet the fact that he experienced all of that 
He did not allow any of it to move him from the path of being faithful to the Father's will in his life. And God the Father's will for the Son of God was very hard. Very hard. And yet Jesus endured it to the end. And he did not, didn't stop obeying the Lord, living for the Father, or speaking for the Father. And the writer of the book of Hebrews is saying that these Jewish Christians were not to do so either, and by implication, neither are we. I like one translation of the uh, verse 3. It says, puts it this way, think about all he endured. When sinful people did such terrible things to him, so that you do not become weary and give up. Do you realize that all that Jesus endured, he endured in his incarnation, all that he endured, the difficulty of it, whether it was meted out against his body or against his heart or against his mind, he endured all of it in his humanity, not in his deity, though he never ceased to be divine. When they drove those nails through his hands and through his feet, he felt that as fully as you and I would feel that if that was done for us. As he was scourged with the whips, as the crown of thorns was put a placed upon his head, really wedged down into the skull cap of his head, he felt all of that exactly as you and I would feel that if it were done to us. The sting of those insults, he felt those. They they wounded him in the same way that they would wound you or I. Jesus lived the life that he lived. He was all fully God and fully man all at the same time. And yet in his earthly ministry for those three and a half years, he lived that life in his humanity. He did only what the Father called him to do. And then he did what the Father called him to do in the same power of the Holy Spirit that is available to us. And he is the example of what a life of faith and obedience to God can end up looking like in the fallenness, the brokenness, the evil of this world. And it's not like the positive confession people like to put Christianity, that if you just have enough faith that it's always going to translate into unfailing health and unfailing wealth. I don't know what Jesus you read about in the Bible. Certain, I don't know, certainly Jesus and the life of Jesus cannot be the focus or the aim under that kind of doctrine. And then we look at how superficial Christianity has, has become even within our culture where this idea that I can throw off Christ, throw off my commitment to Christ, every time it begins to cost me something to obey him. Those special times where we have an opportunity to say, God, I love you more than this thing. And yet, 
what's modeled so often is that we can throw off this relationship with God for this thing. Anytime it costs us something, anytime it becomes hard, we're free to just kind of come in and out of this relationship as if it's with another person or a mere man or a mere woman, which we wouldn't want to do to a mere man or woman. The idea of just coming in and out, the freedom to compromise, uh, obedience to God's word and his calling upon our lives at the first hint of persecution or of sacrifice. I want you to notice, and it's also clear from the writer's rebuke in verse 4 when he says, you have not yet resisted to bloodshed and striving against sin. And that's a strong thing for him to say to them. You have not yet resisted unto bloodshed in striving against sin. Why would he say that? Except that they were falling prey to self-pity because of the persecution and the difficulty that they were facing and being faithful to Christ. They're feeling sorry for themselves. They felt God was asking too much of them, that their life was too valuable to be spent in that way. They felt somehow that they were too good, too useful, too important for God to allow their lives to be spent in this way in human history. After all, all of the self-help books and All of the man-centered books of the age tell me how important it is and my happiness is the most important thing and my human potential and my self-will and the I and the me and the my and the whole thing. And here Christ comes in and he asks of something entirely different of us because because no one will find their life in a self-directed, self-dominated life. But here's this idea, and they're not the first ones. I would say that this whole idea, this whole issue of self-pity is nurtured in our culture when we begin to feel that there is some sacrifice or some difficulty in order to make a stand for something that is right. And we're greatly encouraged by the culture to say nothing of our families and say nothing of the fallen man who still lives inside of each one of us, though we reckon him dead that tells us that we're too important to go through this, we're too valuable to go through this, we're too uh, important and valuable to spend our lives in this kind of a way, find the clearest exit out of this and save your life. If not from death, then from hardship and from the life, the Christian life that's described on the pages of Scripture. And they felt somehow deep down in their core that they were too good or that they were too important or they were above having to live a life like Jesus did. And as a result, the writer reminds them of what they haven't suffered for their faith. And in verse 4, and I think it's very important to recognize it and to make verse 4 a friend to the Holy Spirit and our spiritual man, all the days of our Christian life. What's happening in verses 3 and 4, but especially in verse 4, is there is a sanctified shaming that is going on right now 
between the author and these Christians. It's as if the writer is saying Jesus went through all that he went through. All that you put on that one side of the scale in order to give you the privilege of living this life and now you're going to quit? All of those Old Testament and New Testament saints went through terrible suffering. They died horrible deaths so that you could hear the gospel and be saved. And then now you're going to quit in the face of that? Quit when it becomes your turn in human history to remain faithful to Christ like tens and hundreds of millions have before us because we want to escape the hardship and the difficulty that comes with living for Christ in a world that is turning against Christ. And he's shaming them. He's shaming the old man. He's shaming the old nature for wanting to do what it was thinking about doing. And essentially, he's stressing the costliness of the Christian faith. And he's reminding them, this isn't supposed to be easy. He's asking this, them, in essence, where in the world did you ever get the impression that the Christian life would ever be an easy life? Who in the world ever told you that that's what you would have in this life? We're going to be treated like second-class citizens in this world because our citizenship isn't in this world. It's in heaven. Well, someone might say, how does the writer know that what other Christians have gone through is harder and worse than what I'm going through? As a simple answer, because you're alive. Because you're alive. The fact that you and I have not yet been martyred for our faith in Christ means that we have faced a much lighter persecution than many saints that have gone before us, and certainly a much lighter persecution than the one that Jesus faced. And I'll tell you, this passage is very very strong, but it's necessary. The strong rebuke against self-pity that will sooner or later creep up in each of our hearts as we face some new difficulty in life as a result of being faithful to Christ And we begin to think, I don't deserve this. I'm better than this. I'm more important than this. I'll tell you, self-pity is such a strong danger to our faithfulness. Anyone that falls under the influence of self-pity, they're on their way out the door. And the Holy Spirit knows it. Think about that for a moment. If I begin to feel sorry for myself because of the price that I'm paying as a Christian to remain faithful to Christ, if someone does not come to me 
and tell me to snap out of it and to shape up if there, somebody does not bring a rebuke to my self-pity that is as strong as the writer of the book of Hebrews brings here, then I am in very, very great danger of backsliding or compromising or walking away from the Lord altogether. And so, because they were in need of that kind of a rebuke, and sometimes we are in need of that kind of rebuke, the Holy Spirit supplies it for us here in verses 3 and 4. Self-pity typically comes out of wrong expectations that people have concerning the Christian life. That's usually where it comes from. I have a different expectation of the Christian life. And so when it doesn't translate into my expectation, then I begin to feel sorry for myself. So the weariness and the discouragement occur when my expectations of the Christian's life, Christian life and God's expectation of Christians in this life, it comes into conflict. When my plans for my life come into conflict with God's plans for my life. We must never, ever expect the world to treat Christ living inside of us any different than it treated Christ 2,000 years ago. And to the degree that he lives in us in a greater and greater measure as we grow in our Christ-likeness and in our relationship with the Lord, then the world will meet out against Christ in us in an even greater measure, just as it did in Christ 2,000 years ago. And why did the world treat Jesus the way that it did, both Jew and Gentile alike? Jesus told us in John chapter 3, is because men love darkness and they don't want to come to the light. And so when, the Holy, when a Christian comes into a situation, we bring the life of Christ with us. We don't eat, we're so used to the anointing of the Holy Spirit upon our lives, and it's wonderful. We're so used to this life that we have when we come to know the Lord, for some of us it's decades ago, God has so made us into a completely different person than the one that we were. We don't even realize how much of Christ is flowing out of our lives just in our attitudes. We have a joy the world knows nothing about. <laughs> we wake up with a hope that the world knows nothing about. We can smile and say good morning in a way that no one other than a Christian can say it and mean it and believe it. And so here we come, this wonderful workmanship of the Holy Spirit, and we are placed by God into a particular situation, and we bring that life of Christ with us in the person of the Holy Spirit, and people are going to do one of two things. They're either going to turn from the darkness, turn from their sin, and enter into the light, into what we have, by putting their faith in Christ and becoming one of his followers, or they're going to attempt to discredit the light or to put out the light. That's what the Jewish religious leaders tried to do with Jesus. They didn't like the light. 
So they tried to put out the light. And that's what happens in our lives too. The light of Christ is coming out of our lives. We're the light of the world. We're a city that's set upon a hill. That's going to cause a disturbance in the force, so to speak. It's going to create a problem in a very, very real spiritual realm. And what people felt compelled to do to Christ because of the conviction of his life and of his words, they will feel compelled to do to us. And that is to put out the light. And sometimes that may be through words to discredit us or to slander us or to ruin our reputation. Or sometimes it may be not so much yet in this country, but it's real in much of the rest of the world to put their light out officially and fully by taking their life, but that's only the beginning of the problem because no Christian life or witness dies with the death of that saint. That continues to live on the power of the Holy Spirit. And so there will be, as we just live this simple Christian life that we live, there will be that attempt to discredit the light and to put out the light. And never forget that a love for darkness, a love for sin and pride and self-will is at the core of all rejection of Jesus and Christianity. It is never intellectual. It is never intellectual because God has answers to all the questions we would ask. People do not consider Christ and they do not follow Christ because of darkness in their heart that they do not yet want to give up. Jesus said it in John chapter 4. Men love darkness and so they won't come to the light. And so now we become a part of what the Christ-rejecting world decides they have to discredit or even to destroy. And each of us as Christians, when that happens, we're going to be forced to do one of two things. We will be tempted to compromise, to turn down the light, to just get along in this world in order to escape the difficulty or we will maintain our obedience to the Lord and we will get excited about the opposition. To have certain people as an enemy is a badge of honor. We don't need the applause of this world or the acceptance of this world. We have that already from God. We already have that from a great cloud of witnesses in heaven. So we will either... <clears throat> we will either compromise, <clears throat> excuse me, to escape or we will stand in the midst of it and we will live this life in the power and the wisdom of the Holy Spirit and as a result we will have to face this rejection and this persecution in the world. I think it's important to remember some of the things that Jesus said we should expect concerning the world's treatment of us <clears throat> for the simple reason that Christ turns us into bank robbers or axe murderers. No, he doesn't. 
Isn't it crazy that Christians would be persecuted for becoming like Christ? Isn't it crazy that there are members of your family that won't have anything to do with you because the Holy Spirit is making you more like Christ? Is that a reflection on you or is that a reflection on them? Why are you changing? Why do you feel tempted to change? Why do you feel tempted to compromise or turn down the light? Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow after me. And in essence, he's saying, you want to go where I go in this world? You want to go to the places that I would go? You want to say what I would say when you get there? You want to live the life that I would live in those environments? You want that kind of life? We want that kind of life. He says, here's what it'll take. Denial of self to purposely refuse to elevate my own self-will above the purposes of God for my life. That's what it'll take. Second, to take up our cross. That's a picture of submission to God at whatever the cost, even if the cost is death. And then he said, we must follow him or walk close to him. And that follow is in the present tense in the Greek. It means to keep on following. So Jesus said, that's the way that it is. This is how, this is how you come after me. Say no to self, yes to God. Do so no matter what the sacrifice might be and stay close to me. And that's what Jesus said is the truth about Christianity as defined by Jesus and not by the culture. And that's what we agree to when we become Christians. I think about the Apostle Paul, and he lived that kind of a life, didn't he? And when death drew near, a death he was going to face because of his faith in Christ and his faithfulness to God's call upon his life, and when death did draw near to the Apostle Paul, he never for one second thought about compromising or backsliding or apostatizing from Christ. And why didn't he? Because he believed that his life belonged to God and that God could spend his life for his glory in any way he chose to, whether in life or whether in death. Paul put it this way in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. He said, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life that I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. As far as the Apostle Paul was concerned, his, he was already dead. His life belonged to God and was God's to spend however God saw fit. And I'm sure the Apostle Paul, I know because of Philippians chapter 3, he says it and we believe it about our own lives. I certainly believe it about my life. I would have thrown my life away a thousand different ways 
if Christ hadn't come into my life. I would have ruined my life one of a thousand different ways. My life only has value. It only has meaning. It only has significance. It only has impact because he lives in me and he lives through me. To walk away from him and walk back to the life that I once had in order to save a life that wasn't worth saving in terms of an impact in human history, what a silly thing to do. Paul said, no, no, that decision of leaving Christ is not even on the table. When I came to Christ, I died to my own self-will. This life belongs to God. God can do what I could never do, and that is use it and make it significant for him and for his kingdom. Paul wrote in his final letter to Timothy in chapter 4, he said, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure is at hand. I fought the good fight, I finished the race, I have kept the faith, and therefore henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will give to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. And that's the statement of Paul as he's facing his head being chopped off because he would not deny Christ and he would not stop serving Christ. And our culture so emphasizes and so nurtures the idea of the importance of self. It so nurtures and gives an absolutely undue significance to selfism and to selfishness. And we can become so influenced by it even as Christians that when God allows us to suffer something difficult for his glory, we can begin to think that our life is too good for that. Our life is too important to be used by God in that kind of a way, to be used for the purposes of God, whether in life or in death. But to live for self and all of the self-pity that comes with it is to miss all of life because our lives are only truly significant as they are lived in God's will. That's what brings significance to our life. That's what makes our life significant in human history. And again, self-pity can convince us that we are above suffering, persecution in this life or suffering at all, that we're too important for it and that we're free to abandon Christ or begin to disobey him in order to escape it. But I want to tell you, 
the strength of the passage. I don't want to weaken the passage. It's a strong passage, but it needs to be. We're not too good to suffer persecution in this life. And we're not too good or too important to suffer difficulty for the cause of Christ in this world. And if we ever begin to believe that we are, then we now consider our lives to be more important than the Apostle Paul. Is my life more important than the Apostle Paul? Am I more important than the Apostle Paul? He could lay his life down to remain faithful. We think about Look what was silenced. Look what was stopped at the death of the Apostle Paul. It was all God's timing and purposes. We know and understand all of that. But if he wasn't too important to endure suffering in order to be faithful to the Lord, then I look at his life and I say, surely I'm not too important either. And then to look at all of the apostles... And then to look at the untold millions of Christians all around the world today who are paying a significant and terrible price for their faith in Christ. Am I more important than them? Am I more significant than them? Am I better than them? Do I have an option to walk with God or not walk with God that they don't possess? No, my life and your life can be spent by God in any way He chooses. But we Surrender to him with the recognition and the confidence that if this Jesus would perform a miracle of feeding 5,000 plus with two fish and five loaves and then afterward order that the leftovers be gathered together so they not be wasted. Do you think he's going to waste your life? Do you think he's going to waste my life? Do you think we're going to miss out on anything significant, any true purpose of life this side of heaven by walking faithful to him, whatever the persecution might be or the suffering we might endure in order to do that? Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. You know that. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. It's about me. It's about me and your life. That's what's going on. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they'll persecute you. If they kept my word, they will keep yours also. But all these things they will do for you, to you, for my name's sake, 
because they do not know him who sent me. Jesus didn't sneak us into something and then tell us later that there'd be a price to be paid this side of heaven to be faithful to him. He was up front about it so that we wouldn't be surprised when it happens and so that we wouldn't come into this Christian life with a different set of expectations than the ones that he wants us to have. I want to say, and I know I say it for you in this room as well, it is the single great honor and privilege of our life to be identified with Christ. To be identified with that Savior, with that man, that God-man in human history. This is not a thing, and the writer of the book of Hebrews wasn't saying to them, now listen, you've got to go into the misery of this. He's, he's writing to them so they will not miss the glory of this life. This is the greatest life a person can live. Nothing else can truly be called life, but this is the greatest life a person can live for all of the difficulties, all of the trials, all of the rejection, all of the hurt, all of the pain that we might endure in order to be faithful to the Lord. There is no greater life than the one that God has chosen for us. Whatever the persecution or the rejection from this world. Let me read our text once again this morning. Verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your own souls. You have not yet resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. God's will. Nothing more, nothing less, nothing else. It's a privilege to live this life. Let's stand together and let's pray. The world that you live in and that I live in is changing by the minute. And it is moving very, very hard against God and against his ways. I don't say that there won't be a revival. I pray for it every day. I hope for it. I prepare for it every single day. But in the current trajectory of things, this Christianity that is sometimes all around us, this conditional Christianity that can sometimes exist in our own heart that will not hold up at this time in human history. 
And it's a beautiful thing what's going on really in the world and with the opposition that's occurring related to us as Christians in one sense, in the eternal sense, and that it purifies and it refines our relationship with Christ. It separates between the men and the boys, so to speak. And this is a strong passage. This is a hard passage, but it is a needed passage in order to help us to bring a proper expectation to our Christianity and to the world that we live in, and again, to protect us from self-pity, which will take us in the world's, make, cause us to make the world's worst decisions and take us in exactly the wrong direction. This Christianity, a Bible Christianity, is the Christianity that will thrive and be strong and beautiful and God-honoring in this hour in human history. And I praise the Lord for the exhortive texts, and I praise the Lord for these verses that speak to us about these kind of strong things that are so important and so needed for each of us that want to live for the Lord and want to make a difference in our hour in human history for the kingdom of God. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for this passage. We thank you for what it does. We thank you for the protection against self-pity that it provides. And Lord, this culture that we live in, especially here in the United States, it's I, me, and my, and self, and self, and more self, and selfishness, and selfism, and self, and all, and this, the craziness of it. And you know there's no life to be found there. There's no joy to be found there. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. It's why you called us away from that. And yet, Lord, it can influence our relationship with you. And we begin to value our lives is more important than you. Our purposes for our lives is more important than your purpose for our lives. And we pray this morning in this place that this passage would eradicate any and all of that from our lives and from our relationship with you. And I pray, Lord, and we pray for one another that you would make a close friend of this passage to us and that you would use it to protect us from self-pity all the rest of our Christian lives and our Christian service. And Lord, we want you to know for all the loss that we experience on a lot of different levels for being faithful to you. Lord, you see how much pain is in so many of our families, how much rejection there is simply because we know you and we walk with you and we won't compromise. And Lord, I just pray that you would use this passage to just protect us the rest of our Christian lives against self-pity and to keep our lives the living sacrifice 
that you want them to be upon your altar. And we do confess, Lord, in prayer before you now, that we know and we recognize that the life that we get to live is the greatest life. Thank you for the privilege of it, Lord. And thank you for the sacrifice of your son that allows us the privilege of living a life with such meaning and such purpose and such joy and such peace and such intimacy with you. Lord, we give you praise this morning for that privilege. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.